Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, before we begin our talk today, and Tim, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. If you will, can you get us started? Sure. Uh, my name is Carl Wolf. is our guest speaker today. He began practice in the Theravada tradition in 1991. He has studied with many Western lay teachers, primarily Michelle McDonald and Eric Kolbig, and with senior monks and nuns in the Burmese and Thai traditions. He lived and worked for two years at Spirit Rock and has attended retreats around the U.S., Canada, England, and Burma, where he spent a retreat as an ordained monk. Tim and his partner Robert live in Santa Rosa, where he works as a carpenter and co-facilitates an LGBTQ sitting group. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Roy. Nice to be back here. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, it's wonderful to see uh, this group um, thriving, still thriving after so many years. Um, and it's wonderful to be practicing together on this fine morning. Uh, the, the title of my talk is uh, Self-Doubt and Fear of Failure on the Path to Freedom. It's a topic that I've spoken about twice here before <coughs> on, and um, but I've just completely rewritten the talk <laughs> um, after I've been spending a lot of time in, in intensive retreat lately and um, have more to share. Um, I want to start by trying to paint a picture if it's not clear already just by the words self-doubt and fear of failure to you um, I want to try to paint a picture an emotional picture of, of what I'm talking about of what I'm addressing and to do so I rewrote um, the the biography that was just read about me from my perspective of being um, engulfed in a state of self-doubt and fear. So um, this is, it's a little painful and uh, it's a little uh, close to home, a little personal, but I hope um, instructive and it's brief. So Tim has been practicing for 20 years 
but hasn't really learned anything of much importance. (laughs) He was too indecisive and wounded to ordain as a long-term monk and settled instead for a brief minor role at a local meditation center. Everyone around him has had deep insights and many of his peers are now teaching retreats. He's managed to start a sitting group, but will probably not get further than that. (laughs) Probably many of us experience this kind of um, wrong speech in our minds all the time, directed towards ourselves. You can... There's usually some truth. There's some truth to what we're talking about, what we're saying, what we're hearing, what we're allowing ourselves to believe in the moment. But it's it's heavily edited, it's usually very black and white, coming from just one angle. Um, And it's not very kind, (coughs) to be sure. So, I'm sure you could hear the the self-doubt in there, the the judgment, the comparing mind, comparing with ourselves and others. Um, on On the thought level, that's happening. On the emotional level, the self-pity, the frustration, the anger, the fear, um, underneath it, sadness. So, just for me to get a sense, um, how many how many people here? How many of us here? Um, just raise your hand if you feel like. Um, this is a significant, has been or is a significant issue for you. Voila. <laughs> okay, that's why I keep talking about it. <laughs> so, the first step in, as, as I see it, in, in working with this in our minds and hearts is to become familiar with it, to study it. Um, the more familiar we we are with it, the easier it is to recognize when it's happening, that it's happening, and the better chance we have from not being completely engulfed in it, from not uh, totally identifying with it. Um, the, uh, the ancient Pali word for doubt, vichikicca, is it's usually translated as perplexity, uncertainty, wavering, or the inability to place confidence in. And in, in the suttas, in the teachings, it's described, how it feels, is described as being a wilderness in the heart. Like It's likened to traveling across a barren desert. Um, in 1989, I... Um, hiked, uh, I was in Death Valley with my brother, hiked up a a wash, and was enthusiastic when we set out with our backpacks, you know, from the car to just, we just picked a wash to walk up. You know, by mid-morning, it was going on and on and on, and it just, it became, uh, the enthusiasm was certainly gone, it became this sort of endless bleakness really, it drained my energy. So that, that's how I think of one aspect of doubt. The sutras go on to say it's not only be, being in a barren desert, traveling in a barren desert, but it's being there and then coming across a crossroads with no marker. How do you decide what to do, where to go? How do you decide? So indecision. Confusion is is a is a core characteristic of, of what I'm talking about. Um, if if this is an issue for you, you probably have a hard time making decisions. Um, it's an aspect of delusion in the mind. 
Um, and for me, when I come to that crossroads and don't know what to do, quickly the doubt moves, starts moving into the emotional realm of, um, of that, that, that bleakness, the mind clouds, sort of darkens, and um, there's a, often a sense of dread. I call it the black hole. So, one way to study doubt is to ask ourselves, investigate what often triggers it. Just very simply, this is investigation. Um, so, in my bio, the, the dark bio, um, comparing myself with others, comparing myself with myself at other times, um, you know, I used to be better at this. Um, that other sitting, that last sitting, I did better. You know, that that evaluation. Um, judging ourselves, I'm not doing very well. And then it moves into doubt. I can't do this. The belief that I can't do this. So, um, what are the typical emotions? I've just listed most of them, but, but studying. What happens in the mind? The doubt is a thought, and it leads to, usually, emotions, unless it's caught right then as a thought. Self-pity, sadness, the whole range. And, and, and underneath it all, um, just a raw insecurity is what I experience. Um, Michelle McDonald, my main teacher, she calls these core patterns of conditioning that recur for us again and again in our lives, over and over, uh, karmic knots. Um, and for many of us, they, they come up in, in practice. Um, and they often have some root in, in um, our childhood, childhood wounds. Um, you know, from the perspective of the Dharma, we don't need to actually know or understand the details of what may of the conditioning that may have led to this karma. Um, however, it can be helpful if we have some sense or know. Um, it can be helpful in bringing up compassion for ourselves, in disidentifying from the story a little bit. We can recognize the story, um, understanding the patterns. Um, Understanding why certain situations trigger can trigger these storms for us. Um, for me, in, in in the third grade, I know one of the stories. In the third grade, um, my teacher saw that perceived that there was arrogance in my mind. You know, I was always trying to be the smart kid and get everything right, and apparently one day determined to try to humble me and asked me a, a series of increasingly difficult, I think it was math, questions. You know, and I was very attached to getting it right, to not feeling like and looking like a failure. But if it got harder and harder, eventually I couldn't answer it, and I just cried and cried. You know, and instead of feeling humbled, I was humiliated. And that, it's, it's events like that, at least, you know, that... They set the stage for the mind to try to find a way out of that pain. Um, and where the mind, where our minds, where the human mind tends to go to find its way out of pain is either aversion, getting rid of it, attachment to getting rid of it. Or delusion, just cutting off and, and, and uh, distracting ourselves. And what I want to talk about is the, t the tools that the Buddha offered as an alternative to aversion, attachment, and delusion, which basically come down to love and wisdom. They come down to mindfulness and um, loving kindness and compassion, heart qualities. So one further study, investigation, um, in addition to what are the triggers, what are the emotions, um, how does it feel? Just direct 
attention in the body, in the mind, how does it feel? Not thinking about it or the story, but just how does this feel in the mind? How does this feel in the body? You know, it's usually tight and, and contracted. Um, the, the thoughts might tip us off to what's going on, but usually they're so fast and we're right on to um, reaction to the thoughts that I found it most helpful to become familiar with the energy, the kind of the energy in the mind, the energy in the body that are behind those thoughts, and just how it feels inside. It's like, oh, okay, I can feel this sort of sense of pushing away or contracting against. It's like, oh, maybe something's going on. Probably missed the thought completely. So, so studying doubt or anything unpleasant requires some acceptance of it and some interest in it. Um, we're deeply conditioned to try to make that unpleasantness go away. But the, the healing and the liberation, um, they can only happen when we accept that what's happening is happening. So I don't mean that we should try to, uh, that we should never um, turn away from what's happening, from the emotions, from the pain. Um, it's important to learn to regulate the emotions, um, but if we get into a habit of chronically turning away, either by um, distracting ourselves, um, trying to ignore it, um, even addiction can function as a way of trying to protect ourselves, um, then we're never going to get a chance to get familiar with it and actually see it for what it is. So how do you decide when to turn away or when to face it? It's about motivation. Is the motivation out of aversion to what's happening? Or is it out of compassion? It can be helpful to cultivate some perspective about what we're up against here. You know, the Buddha listed doubt as um, not only one of the five hindrances, the five um, <clears throat> attachment, aversion, restlessness, doubt. Um, what's the first fifth one? Torpor. Restless and torpor, thank you. Um, not only one of the five hindrances that we all experience as humans, but the most undermining, the most undermining hindrance. It's the most difficult <coughs> hindrance, doubt is. And the reason it's the most difficult, the most undermining, is because it's, when it's strong, it, it stops our practice. Why would we keep trying if we are besieged by doubt about trying? It, it stops us cold. It, my practice has been frozen for years by strong self-doubt. Years. Seasons. So think, think if you've ever, um, if there's ever been a time where, or just imagine, some friend, um, if you've doubted, something has caused you to doubt their caring for you, their loyalty, or maybe, you know, this person who is my, um, my partner, if doubt has come, comes into the mind, is this the right person for me? Maybe this isn't the right person for me. How does that feel? It stops the flow of the relationship with that other person. And so what I'm talking about is an internal relationship with ourselves that when there's strong doubt, and we're believing it, that internal relationship stops, and we're stuck. Another way of cultivating perspective about this is um, just the depth of the conditioning behind the doubt. You know, how many moments of doubt in this lifetime, moments, how many moments of delusion, how many times have we gone over it again and again? Never mind, potentially, how many lifetimes 
of all those moments of doubt accumulated. So this is a... There's a passage I, I found in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. A young, tender infant... Now, let's see, the Buddha here is talking about doubt in the, in the teachings. Um, a young, tender infant, lying prone, does not even have the notion of teachings. So how could doubt about the teachings arise in him or her? Yet the underlying tendency to doubt lies within him. It, it's, it's part of our nature. It's, it's going to come up. Um, and a third perspective is that we're not alone in this. You know, it's a universal, it's one of the five hindrances. It's universal. People have deal- been dealing with this forever. They've been dealing with it consciously for at least 2,500 years in the, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and also we know that others have succeeded despite doubt or through doubt. The Buddha said, um, I wouldn't ask you to do this if it weren't possible. He said it's possible. And we can also draw upon our own self-respect here. You know, we were drawn to the teachings. Would we have been drawn to something impossible? You know, we're, there's wisdom in being drawn to these teachings, to this practice. So reflecting on, on the, the depth of conditioning... Um, can give can give us an appreciation for what we're up against and um, it can cultivate compassion, patience, forgiveness, and um, reflecting on sangha. All everyone is working with this. Hopefully, <laughs> um, can cultivate um, courage and acceptance. So as we learn to recognize what's happening, and as our motivation for trying to intervene starts coming more from compassion and acceptance rather than aversion, um, then choosing a specific response, particular intervention, a tool for dealing with this, um, it really comes down to taking stock of, of, uh, it, of you know, do we, do we have a chance right now in facing this? Or not, you know? Is there? Do I have plenty of energy and and clarity um, to to face this now, or um, you know, should I head for the hills out of compassion? Um, and we're often somewhere sort of in between. There's some confidence, um, but we feel challenged, but we're not overwhelmed. So, a good ground rule is um, if we're challenged even if we're drowning, is to stay in the body, the sensations of the body, feeling the body, the first, um, the first foundation of mindfulness. Um, at, at a recent retreat, Steve Smith, one of my teachers, um, he was talking about the difference between feeling experience in the body and, and thinking about it, you know, the, the direct feeling versus the thought level. He said, in practice... We descend into the body and dim the bright lights of the conceptual mind that wants to rationalize, explain, conceptualize, interpret. And we feel. Feeling is more primal, more original than the thinking mind. It came as a later tool. And although, of course, thought is vital and has its great uses, for the purpose of awakening, it's not useful. Feeling is, that direct sensing. Doubt comes because we think about it. We try to fix it or change it. Confidence and trust come from just feeling it. It's that simple. Sustaining mind that feels sensation from within sensation, not from what we think about it, is what overcomes doubt. Again and again we learn that that's what's real, that's what's true, not what we think about it. So just for a moment, just feel sensations in your body, sitting anywhere, buttocks, breath, hand on knee, whatever it is. Just feel the sensations. Is there any room for doubt about what you're feeling? 
feeling what we're feeling. How, where's the room for doubt there? No one could convince you you're not feeling what you're feeling. If you think about it, it gets... Thinking is vulnerable to being colored by emotions. It's not always based in reality. So, so staying in the body. Um, we can also look directly at the thoughts of the thinking mind. We can, we can confront the doubt directly. Um, you know, are these thoughts helpful? Um, are they skillful? Um, if not, can I abandon them? Just that simple approach. Um, are these thoughts true? Is it true that I can't do this? And I know what it's like to feel convinced that I can't do this. Um, the classical antidote for doubt is to cultivate the opposite of doubt. Um, faith. Faith in ourselves. Confidence. Um, couple ways of doing that. Um, reflecting on our good deeds. Reflecting on our good qualities. Praising <laughs> ourselves. In this last retreat, I just I tried saying, good job, Tim. You're doing great. And I just watched how the heart opened and the mind responded to that simple praise. Very direct, very simple. An intervention. Um, and another way of cultivating confidence and faith is to reconnect with our motivation for practice. Our original motivation, our current motivation, maybe it's changed over time. You know, maybe it's about wanting to calm the mind, maybe it's some sense of potential within ourselves, determined to see the truth, whatever it is. The most helpful thing for me in working with this has been loving-kindness practice, metta, and compassion. They're very close. Um, how many here have done formal metta practice? Great, okay. Well, I was going to go through a little guided meditation, but I think I will. It's, it's um, the most common form is... Um, a combination of visualization and, and uh, phrases. So, for example, saying it to ourselves is not always easy, but um, to whomever it's easy, easiest to try to genuinely wish well, you know, may you be safe and protected, may you be healthy and strong, may you be happy and peaceful, peaceful. may you live with ease. The formal practice is just repeating that, repeating that over and over, and with the intention of trying to have it be genuine, really meaning it. Um, so, these core patterns, um, I've through through intensive practice and loving-kindness practice, I've really started to see some, some core patterns related to doubt in me uh, start to untangle and dissolve. Um, one pattern is comparing myself with others and finding myself to be less than, inferior to, um, inadequate, and uh, going into fear about that and all kinds of emotions and reactions. I'm sure I'm not alone with that here. Um, so, in in a recent retreat, <clears throat> where I'd been doing, uh, where for the really actually for the first time I've been able to do the metta practice for myself um, without any resistance coming up, genuinely wishing myself well, which in the West is often a major accomplishment um, for Westerners. So, and, and then during a Dharma talk, um, the teacher <clears throat> mentioned mentioned something that I, I comp the mind, my mind compared myself with what I imagined she had experienced and was skillful at and found myself to be 
inadequate, lacking, fear came up. And then, on its own, spontaneously, loving-kindness arose. came right, I actually felt it physically in my heart center. It came right in to the mind and heart. And the, the Buddha... The Buddha described the feeling of loving-kindness as being the feeling that a mother cow has for her newborn calf. So there's, there's a couple things there. There's, there's love and caring. And there's also that the calf isn't alone. There's that reassurance of not being alone. So when that... When loving, the mind state of loving kindness, I didn't do this, this happened, this came forward. These states have a life of their own. When it came forward, no longer in that moment, in that Dharma talk, was the insecurity and the fear alone. It was being attended to, cared for, just simply. It's just being with. So I often, at this point, I think of mindfulness practice sort of, you know, written, books written about it, everything. I think of it as just being with myself. Being with whatever's happening. If, it, if there's resistance, whatever comes up, can I, can I be with it? Instead of, I am it, can I be with it? A second core pattern. Um, that I've, I'm seeing untangle is difficulty making decisions, which I see as a form of perfectionism. Um, when I was a kid, I had a terrible time choosing flavors of ice cream. <laughs> you know, really, it was terrible. <laughs> it's, you know, I went through so much suffering. <laughs> I can't tell you. It really was horrible. <laughs> I didn't enjoy the ice cream either. Um, <laughs> so, it, it, again, in recent retreat, in meditation practice, every time we wake up from thought, every time we return from being uh, taken with a thought stream, which happens all the time, every time we come back, there's a decision to make. What do I do now? That moment has been so painful for me. You know, it's core, it's essential, it's, it's the essence of meditation. <laughs> it's been so painful. So, uh, uh, same thing as, as my last example in this recent retreat. There I was, sitting on my zafu, came back from some thought, what do I do, not sure, and then I realized, oh, instead of trying to do it right and avoid the feeling of the fear of doing it wrong and the consequences of what might go wrong if I don't do it right in this moment, I thought, I can just be with the indecision. I can just attend as the mind tries to make a decision and, and feels the fear, feels just feeling that insecurity underneath. That's, that's what's needed. That's what's being asked for. Uh, Michelle, my teacher, she's, she's reframed all of the hindrances as ways we try to protect ourselves. Not enemies. They're strategies for self-protection. And, and she's come to think of thought itself, the thinking mind, oftentimes, most of the time, it's just saying, pay attention to me. Pay attention. You know, I need something. It's this insistent, obsessive quality of the mind. It's really a call for help. It's such a... Whether or not it's technically true doesn't even matter. It's just such a helpful reframing because it helps us shift the inner relationship from one of, 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 of antagonism, of of this um, pressure to one of caring interest. We can, we can say, we can do metta practice, formally even, we can do metta practice to our thoughts, to the thinking mind. Thought comes up, a judging, hateful thought comes up, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you live with ease. 
allowing it, allowing it to be, why ever it's there, that's karma. Our place of choice is in how we're relating to what's coming up. And certainly, one of the things that's gotten me through to this point has been other people's loving kindness and care. You know, so if I'm drowning, find somebody to, someone caring, who can hold the loving kindness and the compassion for you. You know, a friend, a teacher, a therapist, someone. Mm. So up to this point in the talk, I've been relating to doubt and fear as a hindrance. You know, as something that blocks our practice, gets in the way of practice. It's important to know that with continued practice and, and support, uh, we, we not only learn to negotiate these doubts, thoughts, and s- emotional storms with more grace, and to catch the doubt thoughts sooner, but there can start to be times when we just allow the doubt and fear to happen without resistance. This is where this is where the freedom really starts to the 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 Buddha um, this is what the Buddha was referring to when he he talked about getting a taste for liberation. The the most effective tool of all the ones I've suggested for working with doubt and fear is just pure mindfulness, which includes non-identification. We're knowing what's happening, and it's not us. We're accepting what's happening. We're interested in what's happening. We're allowing it to be. That's the most effective way, because then it has no purchase over us whatsoever. Michelle mentioned um, that that sometimes now she, she watches uncertainty arise in her mind and then it either and she just continues to watch and it either slides into doubt or confidence it means that she's not trying to control which way it goes that's what is meant by not having preferences In, in another ret- recent retreat, um, at a, some moments when, when there was a lot of mindfulness was strong and clear, um, equanimity, you know, just what we always want, um, the peak experience, um, a doubt thought came up, which, you know, I'm not doing very well, which... I didn't even barely pay attention to it. It was so out of place. Like, why are you coming up now? Things are going great. So, you know, I didn't even... I just thought, okay, there was a little doubt thought. And I assumed that would be it, because I wasn't believing it at all. Zero. And I was astonished, just astonished, to see that I started crying. The conditioned response to that thought had its usual effect. I didn't push the doubt thought away. Like when we really let it have its own life, it can do what it does. You know, I cried for two minutes and I was sitting there, my mind was totally clear. It's like, it was like somebody else was in my body having this experience. It was like watching somebody else. The thought happened, I started crying, I cried for a good couple minutes, just quietly, but, you know, crying. The crying softened, stopped, and there was this sigh of relief. And meanwhile, I was just there watching the whole thing. So that's strong mindfulness is what it is. It's not getting in the way of the flow of karma. Of, of past conditioning. It's allowing it to move through without any resistance and therefore without creating any new karma. It's purification. It's allowing it to happen. 
out of time. I was afraid of that. So as as our deepening, as our understanding deepens, um, it's not that we don't get lost in doubt anymore, but um, but we can. we can remind ourselves while it's happening, while we're in its throes, it is what it is, it has a life of its own, I didn't cause this, you know, and just, just keep willing to stay with it as it goes on. Um, I don't need to fix it, I don't need to figure it out. You know, my mantra of late is, uh, don't fix it, feel it. Just feel what's happening. And when, and when it comes up and we're not lost in it, that's when investigation into the three characteristics of experience, this is, you know, classic text here, can really flower. Anicca, anatta, and, and dukkha are usually translated as um, uh, suffering, impermanence, and, and not self. Um, this morning I realized it means uh, all things have the characteristic of being um, imperfect, impermanent, and impersonal. So that experience where the crying happened on its own, the mind had the space because it wasn't caught up in trying to fix it or change it to actually notice what was really happening. I wasn't causing it. I didn't cause it in the first place. It was just happening on its own. It was unpleasant. It was uncomfortable. And uh, it came into being. It, it, there was, it, it came into birth, lived its life, and it ended. It's impermanent. Eric Kovig recently pointed out to me that, you know, as insight deepens, we gain more skill. <coughs> and with more skill, insight deepens. So with regard to doubt, with any difficult pattern, as, as we understand anatta, not self, more deeply, there's less identification with experience, it's just doing itself. And because there's less identification with experience, it's easier to accept those core patterns, to not resist them, to accept them with kindness, even. The deeper level of insecurity that is unpleasant. <coughs> There's a deeper level there. There's a vulnerability inherent in in life, in samsara, um, because everything is changing. Um, with stronger mindfulness and seeing things come and go on their own, begins to come the insight that this is endless. A doubt thought comes up. There's an emotional reaction to it. I go through this whole storm, eventually come out of it. Or it's a tiny little doubt thought. I see it, it goes away. It just, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. It's endless. Eric recently said to me um, that more and more, the way he thinks about this path is um, about the reality here. There's no solution here. And that's when the mind begins to turn toward the unconditioned. It looks, you know, there's a deeper level of looking for a solution. 
it, it becomes disenchanted with the world, is some of the, often the language, with experience. It's like, you know, we're not the doubt, we're also not the confidence. I better stop with just reminding um, us of a, a key Dharma principle that, that if the motivation is to get rid of what's happening, to change what's happening, it's just going to increase our suffering. You know, can we, can we come from a place? Practice is, what we are practicing is coming, experimenting with and seeing the results of relating to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience with clear seeing of awareness, mindfulness, and with uh, wisdom, uh, with um, loving kindness and compassion. And see for yourself, is it a more effective strategy than attachment, aversion, and delusion? If there's time, I'll read a wonderful quote. But um, before, I'm going to... Any questions? Probably don't even have time for questions, do we? We have time for the quote. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I need more time. And you wouldn't believe how much I cut out of this yesterday. (laughs) But will you be around afterwards for questions? Certainly. Okay. Certainly. Um, and this quote doesn't even relate directly to what I've been talking about. It's just such a great quote. I wanted to read it to you. <laughs> um, it's from a. It, it, it's said by a, a Burmese woman, woman, who became an arhat, a, a, a fully enlightened being, a woman. Not many of them know. She she died in 1991. Her name is Mechi Gao. Um, and I won't try to define a few things here, but you'll get the sense of it. She said, body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind, the elements within us. Body, feelings, memory, thought, and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, emotions, anger, greed, delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. They arise They cease, they are forever changing, but the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. It is forever unborn and undying. This is the end of all suffering. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Thank you, Tim. So we have time for announcements. If I may start, I don't think we have a host today. Anthony put water on for tea, is that correct? Yeah, I did put water on for tea, and uh, if you have tea, please rinse or wash your cup in hot, soapy water, and then rinse it and put it on the drying rack. And I'll I'll channel the rest of the host announcements for you. Um, (laughs) On the, the... furniture over here, whatever about it is, uh, there will be the sign-up sheets for the newsletter or the mailing list. If you're not on there, please sign up um, if you would like to. And I'll try to come around with the Donna Bowl, but if you don't see me, the Donna Bowl will be on that same piece of furniture. And we ask that you give what you can to help this song continue. And somewhere between five and eight dollars is the suggested amount, but more is, of course, always welcome. Whatever. Um, around twelve thirty, there will be uh, a group of people that might want to go to lunch together. So, if you would like to join some of the Sangha members for lunch, just hang around the door around twelve thirty, and it'll all happen. <coughs>
with those other things. Yes, that's good. Thank you. Any other announcements? Jim? Um, next week, our speaker is William Schindler, who is um, brother, his name is brother Lloyd, who's a good friend of Charlton and Foucault's. And he's had a fascinating career as a therapist and a student and a monk. And um, he founded Ashram West um, that offers meditation instruction, spiritual coaching, and counseling free to all sincere seekers. He lives as a gay tantric monk, the first in a new order he founded as part of the work of Ashram West. So it should be interesting. That's next week. Okay. I think next week is Carnival. We think so. I mean, I'm. It's really yeah. no, because if you get here by uh, car, it's very difficult. Parking is impossible. Um, just to know, I frantically, you know, tried to find a parking place so I could come and meditate. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of nice to know that in advance. Thank you. Is Carnival actually on Mission Street? At the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but in fact, streets get closed off. Right. Right. Okay. The 24th Street Fire Station is an alternative way of getting there. That's right. Thank you. Anyone else? Just let me mention that I um, created a two-page sort of outline synopsis of the various tools that I found helpful in working with doubt. Um, and they're out on the table there. I only brought about five copies, but I could, you know, if there's more people, I could email it or whatever. And I also put out some flyers for the group that I run up in Santa Rosa in case you know anybody who might be interested in it. Anyone else? Okay. How about we stand? By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.